0: We've survived another fortnight, and somehow between the last episode, and this episode, I think Alex became a big shot YouTuber.
1: Oh, did I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you definitely upgraded the camera. For those that are tuning into the live stream uh, on this Wednesday night, you're looking sharp. I think the beard probably helps. I'm liking
1: the beard. You know, I'm a fan of the beard. I uh, I have launched a YouTube channel, officially, officially, official. Now it's on the podcast too did a video this week on Ansible and Docker Compose um, secret management. So if you find that kind of thing interesting, there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm launching it kind of as a, an aside to um, a new consultancy company that I've been working on for the past few months. I have a very unfinished website over at ktzsystems.com. Basically what we're going to do, freelance infrastructure consulting and building cloud-based solutions using infrastructure as code for other people. So if that's of interest to you, shoot me a message over at contact at ktzsystems.com. That sounds like a
0: great idea because what you can basically offer is if they no longer want to work with you, you can hand them the playbooks or whatever it is. And the next people that take over can just stand everything up they need to. They got everything. It's self-documenting. They can recreate the infrastructure. It it sort of is a, a guarantee of avoiding vendor lock-in is what you're offering
1: that's the idea i mean all of my code's been open source for many years uh, on github but that doesn't mean that everybody else understands quite how my brain works and how it all fits together and <laughs> you know there are people out there managing stuff for the cloud so the idea is i've been working with some clients over the last few weeks who are very good in their field and they want to deploy solutions with other people I know lots about ZFS backups and how to automate things and you know, make things talk to other things over VPNs and do all sorts of infrastructure related stuff, right? But they're dealing with the client relationship side of things. And so I'm essentially a mercenary out for hire to build you your infrastructure. Do That's your that could be your theme song, Alex, you know. Right. So somebody needs to sample that. That's now the theme tune of self-hosted.show. I am proud of you. That's a great, that sounds like it's going to be a good venture. Could also be a ton of work, you fool. I don't know what you're getting yourself into, but. Definitely the YouTube side is a lot more work than I think I appreciated. You know, a podcast is one thing, but video is a whole nother beast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get something out there that's YouTube worthy and all that kind of stuff is very tricky too. I I get you, but you'll figure it out. And I think in, you know, today's world, isn't that kind of how you promote a new business is with the, with the tubes of. You and the social of the media is. probably means you got to become a big Twitter guy too, right?
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Just in time to catch that dumpster fire.
0: <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could do,
1: maybe you could be the first Ansible guy on TikTok. Maybe that's the way to go, you know, get your TikTok going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Did you see that Git T 1.19 was released this week? Very exciting for me personally. You know, I'm a big Git T guy, Alex. I don't believe it. But it is exciting, genuinely, uh, if you're into running GitHub Actions. And GitT is a local kind of GitHub clone, if you like. its I mean, probably legally speaking, I shouldn't say that. But it's designed to emulate a lot of the features of GitHub. A GitHub alternative, one could say. One might say a GitHub alternative. And with this release this week, uh, GitHub Actions has now got a built-in CI system that emulates a lot of the GitHub Actions functionality. Heck yeah. You can reuse your familiar workflows in GitHub Actions with a self-hosted GitT instance. And whilst it's not yet quite currently fully compatible with GitHub Actions, they do intend to become compatible, uh, as compatible as they can do in future versions. Yeah, this is something that is, if
0: you're getting uncomfortable with the centralization around GitHub and you're you're looking for an alternative, this is something that might be a little easier than GitLab. That's kind of what I've been told. Um, and also, you're seeing a lot of platforms that offer one-click app deployments. You're seeing them offer uh, GitT more and more these days, which is really great. Makes it available to more people, makes it easier to decentralize this type of thing. It doesn't all need to be on GitHub especially for your own private stuff.
1: I mean, we saw with Docker this week, didn't we? The, the perils of centralizing everything in one place. And I know GitHub are making plays to be the container registry of the internet. It's nice to have another option that is kind of syntax compatible with GitHub Actions. Uh, that you know, that, That's the big issue that I have with GitLab. Not that it isn't great software and it doesn't work really well because it does. It's the fact that it's its own thing. And a lot of that is because GitLab runners, I think, predate GitHub Actions. And so that just, you know, split there, that fragmentation in the ecosystem there means that it's not quite as easy as it could be to shift from one to
0: the other. And the reality is, is GitHub Actions have proven to be very popular. People love them. So that compatibility is, uh, it's very, it's going to be very enticing for people that are looking to move from GitHub. So Docker, we talked about Docker in episode 502 of Linux Unplugged. Alex joined us, linuxunplugged.com slash 502. And Alex did his homework for that episode and did a great breakdown of the history of Docker in general, just to kind of set up the context around their recent Docker hub decisions with open source projects and uh, kind of set us up perfectly for today's conversation around looking for alternatives. So I know it's kind of asking for people to do some homework, but. Uh, after you listen to this episode, you can get some background context by listening to episode 502 of Linux Unplugged, and plus you get more Alex. What's not to like, Hey, eh? Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you are checking out fast, reliable cloud hosting. I really think you should try it for your next project. It's what we use for everything that we've built in the last couple of years. Anything that we host in the cloud, we host on Linode. And I think you'll probably appreciate this as a self-hosted listener. You know how important it is to have control over the stack, the whole system. You know, I want to be able to SSH in and look at the logs and troubleshoot something and look at the process list, check the file system, you know, just the basics. And Linode gives you access to all of that. They don't try to lock you into some esoteric system and then upsell you all the time like the major duopolies do. And Linode is still 30 to 50% cheaper than they are. And Linode has MVME storage. You can have super fast IOPS. You can really do some throughput. And they have 11 data centers today around the world, and they're turning it up past 11. Another dozen data centers they're rolling out through 2023. I've mentioned it once before, but I'm going to mention it again because they just introduced a whole bunch of new things for people to test out with the Linode Greenlight program. It's like getting early beta access to the next generation of Linode products before they hit the market, and they call it their Greenlight. Uh, Like, so example, new core data centers, new object storage enhancements, the uh, new serverless stuff. Yeah, you can get access to that when you're part of the Greenlight program and help Linode test. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're already a Linode power user. That's probably how you talk and you want to take it to the next level. So if you're a performance hound, Linode's great for you. If you want to know you got great support behind everything you do, Linode's great for you. If you want a dashboard that's easy to understand with backups that are super transparent and straightforward, linode's perfect for you and if you never want to touch a gui you want to do it all from the command line access things over the api or the existing cli tools linode's great for you too they've been doing this for nearly 19 years just making it better and better so go support the show and try it out and get that 100 dollars when you go to linode.com ssh yep it's linode.com ssh
1: now, all this Docker Hoopla got me talking to a longtime friend, Alex Ellis, who wrote a blog post about the fact that Docker was deleting all open source images from Docker Hub, potentially without warning in as little time as 30 days. It really was quite a shocking announcement from Docker. So make sure if you haven't listened to Linux Unplugged, you at least have a quick look through the blog post that's linked in the show notes so you know that we're, what we're talking about. It was really just, to me, mind-boggling that Docker scored such a known goal on this one. It highlighted such a huge risk for organisations. And, you know, you you think to yourself, oh, well, if if the Docker image goes away, I can just rebuild. I can clone the Git repo and rebuild the image from the source code that's in the Git repo. Except the way in which containers work, particularly the, the Docker format, you have a from tag at the beginning of your Docker file, which is usually referencing another image somewhere else. It could be uh, an NGINX specific image. It could be Ubuntu. It could be Fedora. You know, lots and lots of different options for upstream images that you could be referencing. And what if they go away? Or well, then suddenly your code locally is relying on an upstream dependency that's no longer there. Huge risk. And like I said, uh, it got me chatting to an old friend, Alex Ellis, and uh, he and I recorded a short interview for the show. So here we go. So welcome to the show, Alex Ellis, who is the founder of OpenFast. I, I met you, I think, a, a while ago, Alex, at uh, a- some kind of a Docker event in Trafalgar Square in London a long time ago. How are you doing?
2: Doing well, thank you. Yeah, I remember, I think it was a doc- one of the Docker birthdays and it was uh, in a-, a trendy startup office somewhere come down on the train for the day just for that and um yeah they had a cake and demos and people were starting to play with this new tool called play with docker.com and uh, i about that time i was working on this idea of open FAS, of being able to run functions on at the time docker swarm it's very interesting i think you
1: and i also share a few hobbies i i noticed that you have some woodworking coffee Related products in your in your online store.
2: Yeah, that's right. I really love um, hand tool woodworking. So, if there is someone listening and they, they sort of love their table saw, it's not that kind of woodworking. It's um, I follow Paul Sellers, a British woodworker. He's a, a master master craftsman in my eyes, but he calls himself an amateur because he approaches it as a normal person and he makes all of his articles and content something that anybody in the world could start with without any power tools. Absolutely.
1: I mean, I, I'm more of a, a friend of the hot dog table saw because I value my fingers. But, uh, you know, that's how it goes sometimes.
2: If anyone doesn't know what, what that is, it's the the table saw that if it feels your finger, any electric pulse from your body just completely basically blows itself up. I think it costs $200 to buy a new unit for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I prefer that
1: than a, a trip to the hospital. But um. Exactly. So you came across my radar again this week with the uh, the Docker Hoopla last week. We covered that pretty thoroughly on Linux Unplugged on Sunday. Uh, so go check that out, linuxunplugged.com slash 502 for a full breakdown there. But you and I were talking in the back end, and you've been up to some really interesting stuff, uh, you know, outside of the OpenFast ecosystem, even looking at improving GitHub actions and runners. Tell me a little bit about this firecracker
2: stuff. The main thing that I've been doing since 2019 is building a sustainable commercial business around fats and that involves commercial add-ons. It involves hiring people and paying paying full time salaries and, and giving support to companies that you know value having support and a response, somebody to talk to about things that go wrong. But I'm still incredibly curious, and that's something that I've always had: is this curiosity of, so here's a technology. That, that I gel with. How could I apply it? And one of the things I created just as a spare time project was something called Fazd, And this used very low level container tools like ContainerD with no Kubernetes at all, no clustering. And it brought the OpenFAS experience to a VM. And it was incredibly hard. I gave up after 18 months. And then I, I came back about six months later and had another shot at it and eventually I figured out how to make all these low-level components work together. And it was, it was kind of useful that I had that knowledge because when I when I got interested in Firecracker, the original release of it, it wasn't really ready to use. Nobody had spent the time to build the prototypes. There was maybe a couple of blog posts, but even a getting started guide didn't show you how to get networking to it. So you could launch this VM with Ubuntu but you couldn't get to the internet, the most interesting thing to do with a VM. And so all of that stuff that I'd done with FASD, first of all, I was like, could we take FASD and rather than running with, with run C, effectively what Docker uses, could we have Firecracker in the backend instead? Because there's this idea that you have Docker at the top, then you have container D and then you have run C, or maybe you have one of the other tools that can effectively run a VM, like Firecracker, and you can just swap it, and everything just works. And it turned out that wasn't the case. And so I, I kind of left Firecracker alone. And then I came back, I think, when we'd got much more into GitHub Actions. And a finding that building Kubernetes operators was just so slow. We're talking about like a 20-minute build, because we wanted to publish for ARM64 and x86. Cross-compilation is slow. Kubernetes is slow. There's a lot of Go modules to download. And um, the GitHub hosted runners were just, just went up to it. You know, or, or every time you did a commit because you missed a typo or semicolon, you've got a good 25 minutes to wait again. Yeah, and that's no good. You want to be iterating fast, don't you? On top of that, you know, trying to build this commercial company I told you about, um, we had a load of private repos. And the thing about private repos is you get 3,000 minutes for free and then you have to pay for them, the build minutes. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to pay an unbounded cost with a new bootstrapped company, even though it might be a reasonable bill for all I know for what we use. So part of me really wanted to try and solve that problem. How could we use potentially like Firecracker VMs on a bare metal host that we already owned or had access to or credits to and have all of the CI run there? And to begin with, I just installed all of the tools on a a bare metal machine that I got from Equinix Nettle tried to run my build, and the first thing that happened was obviously Docker wasn't installed. So then I went on the machine, I installed Docker, ran the build again, and then kubectl wasn't installed. So I installed that, ran the build again, and you can kind of see where I'm going with this until I got to where it started a kind cluster. And because I had two builds running at once, or in fact, actually they weren't concurrent because the self-hosted builder can't run more one, one build at once, the first build had left some dirty state on the machine. The default kind cluster was left over. So my second build failed. And that was kind of my life for about a week, trying to get, I don't know, like 20 repos at the time to run on there, each of them falling into side effects, each of them having maybe one obscure package missing that was on the hosted runners. And eventually just got it, you know, okay, and left it and tried not to think about how out of date it was. And that was OK for a while until I had to reinstall the machine. And I had to do it all over again. I was like, this is too much. I knew there was a Kubernetes operator around. that um, At the time, was a third party uh, community thing. It looked super complicated. It needed a whole Kubernetes cluster to run it, when really we'd been getting by really well with just one massive machine. The other thing that really concerned me is, this goes back to Docker, is there's two ways to run a Docker build in kubernetes one is you mount a docker socket from the host that means that your ci is now root on the host and effectively could potentially take over the whole cluster it's not good you're not going to get access to the docker socket on a github runner anyway though are you you would if you want to run a docker build with the kubernetes operator called actions runtime controller arc you have to mount the Docker socket into the runner of why she can't run Docker. Now, this is the first way of doing it. That's mildly terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying, but there's so many companies and teams that I've spoken to who are like, well, it's free, I'm just going to do it. And I wonder if their manager or their CISO realizes what they're doing. Now, one of the early customers for Actuated, the solution that we eventually built, um, they were doing that as well and they hated it. And so I tweeted, and I've sent you a link if you want to share it later. And basically, they were like, this is exactly what we've been looking for. Because the other thing about sharing the socket is that the version of Docker on your host could differ from the one in the build image that you've got. And that also causes problems. You also got to continually ch own the socket, because apparently it gets reset. And goodness knows what other issues. Now, the alternative is to run Docker in Docker now if you google docker and docker the first thing that shows up is um jerome that was docker's main trainer back in the day saying don't do this don't do it's this. really ugly and it's slow and that's the a recommended approach is run docker and docker as a privileged container so just like mounting the socket can now take over that host and those are your two options
1: So micro VMs are a really interesting way to solve that problem because, you know, you end up with a, instead of a one-to-many relationship on the Docker socket,
2: you end up with a a one-to-one relationship almost, right? You do. And there's some pros and cons to it. On the the pro side, it's a completely immutable environment every build. So it's just like you had a a hosted runner that you paid for. On the the cons, you know, um, GitHub Pay, Docker Inc., a certain amount of money to have a pool token and I've actually logged into the runner. And if, if you look at the, the Docker config file, they've already logged in with it. So you could I don't know if you could potentially take that and use that on your own machine, but that's what they've done. So when people run Docker pull in hosted runner, it uses that key and it's authenticated. So you're going to have to do that yourself in each build because your cache is always going to be empty, which is actually a desirable thing. But if you're pulling a big image, like two gigs, then you've got that empty cache, right? So that's potentially a con. And so we wrote up some instructions, wrote a GitHub action that configures a, uh, a cache on the server where all the micro VMs are. And then you actually again, get a faster pull than if you want to host it from because it's literally over the loop back. So I'm going to put a link
1: to all this stuff in the show notes for those that are interested in following Alex's uh, Actuated.dev company and its, its uh, journey over the next few months. Where can folks go to get started with it today? Are you still in pilot or, or what? So the idea we've
2: actuated is that this isn't something for personal repos. It's not something for a one-man band. It's really for a team of about five up to maybe 50 plus employees, either multiple teams or, or company. Now with fires, we tend to hear from developers. With Actuated, we tend to hear from SREs, lead lead developers or or DevOps leads, maybe even sysadmins within a company. And so that's kind of interesting because they tend to have money to solve problems. One company, UK-based, that I spoke to a couple of days ago told me they started out on Cloud Build. The cost now is £5,000 per month. And previously, it was five times less six months ago. So if they're on that trajectory, they're going to be spending a heck of a lot of money in 12 months from now. Well, we could probably half that bill through a combination of bare metal with decent prices and a flat rate pricing plan through Actuated. So this is an open source. We're trying to build a business. We've got salaries to pay. We want to be profitable. And so at the moment, the pilot is fully functional. We've got teams running VMs. We've had 18,000 VMs launched already in a few months. And we're just looking for people that want to solve that problem, that know that this Docker and Docker solution is not scalable that are happy to find some servers in their cloud or bare metal installer agent. And that's pretty much all they have to do. At that point, we, through our control plane, send jobs to them.
1: Very good. Thanks for joining us, Alex. And I wish you the best of luck with this company moving forward. Make sure you go and check out his stuff over at openfast.com. There's all sorts of stuff on his Twitter. You're quite the prolific contributor to this to this space, I think.
2: Yeah, thanks. And there's a, there's a bunch of open-source projects as well, like Ketchup, a really easy installer for K3S and Arcade, a, a great way to install just CLI tools in CI. I forgot that was you.
1: <laughs> You've done all sorts of stuff. Thanks for joining, Alex. It was a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Alex. That was great, Alex. Thanks to the other. It Was that two Alexes? That was... <laughs> it, it's always a super fun time when Alex is talking to Alex. It's always mm-hmm. a good time. Yeah, he's definitely off on some adventures. So a big thanks to Alex Ellis for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with actuate.dev. Tailscale.com
0: slash self-hosted. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices, mobile devices, servers, VMs, whatever it is. 20 devices. tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Talescale is a zero-config VPN that you can get up and running on your devices in minutes. And it lets you easily manage and access private resources on your LAN, maybe get into your box like I have on my home assistant system. And then you combine it with nice tooling like Tailscale SSH and Tailscale Send to really get the perfect package. I think this is finally what we've been waiting for as self-hosters, is taking WireGuard's noise protocol to the next level and building us a flat mesh network that we can have online all the time. And TailScale is really smart. It's not just sending all the traffic to the TailScale network like an old clunky VPN. It only sends the traffic intended for your TailScale nodes over your TailNet. That matters because that means you can leave TailScale running all the time, 24-7, and it just works transparently when you need it. I just use my TailNet IPs now instead of my internal IPs because no matter where I go, I know that's going to work. You can easily and quickly create a secure network between all your devices, even when separated by firewalls and subnets or the dreaded double carrier net. Tailscale just works. And with Tailscale SSH, you can quickly establish an SSH connection between all your Tailscale devices authorized by your Tailscale system using those access controls. And those access controls are great. Like Alex and I have it set up so we can share certain things over certain machines. And there's even tooling to audit those access controls. And the best part is it just keeps getting better and more and more useful. I've really changed the way I do my networking now. No inbound ports anywhere. None of my networks anywhere now have inbound, inbound ports on my firewall. I just do everything over my tail net. Real game changer. And you can use it for free for up to 20 devices. It's not a limited time trial. You can use it for free up to 20 devices because the traffic's it's going between your machines directly. It's pretty awesome. Go check it out and support the show. You just go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. That's tailscale.com slash self-hosted.
1: So this week it's Docker Hub, right? Who knows what it's going to be next week, next month, next year. Is it time to do a jellyfin challenge, but with Podman? Hmm. You know, I've thought about this.
0: I've experimented a little bit with switching over to Podman. It's not 100% for me, but it is pretty dang close, especially now that they have Docker Compose support.
1: This is the first time I've used Podman properly in, dare I say, as a Red Hat employee, a year or two. It's been a long time, genuinely, because the Docker Compose support was, um, it just wasn't there. You know, they, they had there was a dedicated application called Podman Compose, and it said it was a drop-in replacement, but in reality, it meant I had to change more than I was comfortable with. So I just went back to docker compose and docker. But this time with the Docker Hub news I thought let's give rootless podman containers a try. Yeah. So let's start by trying to answer the big question. Whenever I hear people talking about rootless, I always think to myself, why the f should I care? What who who cares? My docker socket's running as root. My docker service is running as root. So what? Well, I had a listener this week give me a simple command which uh, showed me that that attitude is perhaps a little bit outdated. So if you go to your Docker host and type docker run dash IT dash V, this command will be in the show notes, dash V slash and basically mount your root file system read write into an Alpine container and then cheroot into that slash mount directory your root on the host. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to wait for a CVE or a vulnerability, which has always been my argument. Perhaps it shows a lack of understanding on my part. Almost certainly it does. But uh, I was actually taken aback a little bit by just quite what that meant. And so that really had me thinking, hmm, these rootless containers, I I should be taking these a bit more seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we had a really fun episode
0: of Linux Unplugged years ago where we kind of demonstrated the risk of docker as root where we opened up the machine to the world and let the live audience ssh into the machine and uh yeah it basically took a few minutes before neil had root access to the whole system it's just oh god you know and the nice (laughs) thing about podman too is podman feels not only like it was built with like it's like very common in the community to run it rootless. So like there's a lot more community momentum around that, but it feels a little lower level to the system. It doesn't feel quite
1: as much as like an abstraction as Docker does to me when I use it. So there's that aspect of it too. I think Docker suffers a little bit from being the first mover. Mm. Whereas Podman had time to stand back and take a look at the ecosystem as a whole and say what's needed to make this actually implement properly with the kernel and not have all of these air quotes hacks. To, you know, like a, a demon running as root solves a lot of problems, Yeah, but also creates some as well.
0: Not having the demon is really, really nice. It is. It also just, again, because it's all kind of integrated in with, with all the stuff that Red Hat's kind of focused on these days, it also just feels more native on a, on a Red Hat system. It feels sort of like, I don't know. And it worked right on NixOS too. When I first deployed my Odroid 3, first go around, I was using um, Podman. And then after experimenting with a little bit and having a few things not work, I decided, you know, save myself the hassle. I'll just switch back over to Docker. But now looking back at it, I kind of wish I had maybe stuck with it.
1: So I did some testing this week on Ubuntu because that's my primary home server OS. Well, technically it's Proxmox, which is technically running an Ubuntu kernel for ZFS support with Debian user space. (laughs) God. I know, right? But (laughs) Such a hodgepodge. It is what it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... In the package repos, I thought, "Cool, Podman's in there. I'll just do a, you know, apt install Podman." And so I went all the way through all of my testing, ran my Docker playbook, you know, did the secret injection like I showed in the YouTube video this week, and was just having tons of errors and problems and permissions issues and all sorts of weirdness that was just not working right. And yeah, after a couple of hours, I kind of gave up and I proclaimed on Twitter that it still wasn't ready and was ready to throw in the towel. Somebody tweeted back at me overnight and said, are you using version three or version four? And I was like, well, I'm using the latest one. It was from the package repos. Dumb, dumb. No, I was using Podman three. So I upgraded the next morning to Podman version four. And lo and behold, everything just worked. I mean, literally just worked out of the box. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. When I played
0: around with it, I think it might've been when version four came out last. I don't know how recent that is, so I'm, I, you know, my old man memory here might be failing me. But when I played around with it, I was so impressed
1: mm-hmm. with how straightforward it is. And you know, you can even run it on macOS now. Yeah, that's, it's super nice what they've been doing. <laughs>
0: that's
1: there's, pretty incredible. There's so many little things now that have, have been worked on. Um, we were talking in the Discord just this week about Docker Hub and saying, wouldn't it be nice in the Docker client if we could put in a list of registries for it to automatically search to overcome the fact that Docker hijacked that root namespace in, in all of their clients. And what I mean by that, for those that didn't listen to LUP, is rather than type typing docker pull uh, registry.url slash image into your Docker client, you just type docker pull NGINX. And it overrides that to actually, under the covers, go to Docker Hub, do- Docker Hub registry.io, whatever it's called, And so with Podman, you can specify a registries.conf file and put in a list variable of all the different registries you want to search, just in a nice little comma separated list. So did you have everything work? Sounds like things were pretty smooth for you. Like you didn't run into some of the problems that I did. Pretty much everything was smooth. I mean, because you're not root, there are some extra things you have to take care of. So my target for the evening was to run traffic through an Nginx container or run NGINX through the traffic container underneath. And traffic, as as you probably know, mounts a Docker socket to listen for new containers that are coming and going in order for it to automatically create the rules and routers and stuff for all of its TLS automation stuff. So first things first, to mount to a privileged port, and that is a port that's 1024 or lower, you've got to be root. Unless what you want to do is disable that, you can enable a sysctl parameter, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes, Down below, uh, you need to allow privileged ports to be bound by unprivileged users. It's not difficult, it's just something you've got to do. The next thing is you've got to enable the Podman socket. Now, this is for traffic, and this is also for Docker Compose. Mm -hmm. So you can still use Docker Compose itself. It's not a different project, it's not Podman Compose. It's literally just the actual Docker Compose binary. Because it turns out when they built Fig originally, which was the precursor to Docker Compose, they were just using APIs public APIs in Docker. And so what Podman have done is reverse engineered those APIs, put them into Podman, and now Docker Compose just speaks to those directly. It's pretty slick. It is. So you need to enable a socket. And and my issue was, uh, just out of habit, I enabled the socket as sudo. So I did sudo systemctl enable podman.socket. Just out of habit. Turns out that means that Podman was running as root. So even though I was running all my commands as a user, podman or docker compose technically speaking not podman because this was the other confusing thing when i ran podman run nginx the web server was running as my user and when i ran docker compose run it brought up traffic and nginx underneath as root and i was like what the f is going on this doesn't make any sense so it turns out what you've got to do is enable the socket as a user service so systemctl uh dash dash user something something link in the show notes And as soon as I did that, everything worked exactly as you would expect. You need to then export an environment variable just to tell Docker Compose where the socket is. Docker underscore host is the variable. Uh, Super simple. Again, there'll be a link to a blog post explaining all of that in the show notes. It's a very homework heavy episode, this one, but uh, (laughs) it's very difficult to explain some of these technical concepts audibly sometimes. So, you know, documentation is there for a reason. And then the final thing that you've got to enable is because system processes or system services terminate when that user session terminates by design, you've got to enable something called Lingering, and that is for uh, on a per-user scope. So what you're probably going to want to do in the long run is create a dedicated Podman user or a dedicated container user, enable Lingering and enable the socket for that user and then have that running in the background so that your your users user logs in and just does stuff normally and then you can use su to change to that other user if you need to
0: yeah that's a good idea in general i think that's a good practice people should get comfortable with anyways even if they weren't doing this setup even run you know even have a user for your docker containers because if you think about it from a file permission standpoint you're going to have some containers that might need to get access to the same files and it can get complicated if they're running as different users and whatnot. So yeah, a dedicated user, something like named Podman or like the container user, or name it something completely ridiculous. I don't care
1: what you name it, I'm not your dad, but that definitely is a good idea. It's a good tip. Now, the only containers that I ran into any issues with, unfortunately for me, were the Linux server.io containers. And this is because those containers have an init system in them. And that has a bunch of baggage with it that means that you can't necessarily... Just run as a specific user. It's trying to do like uh, ch. How do you say this word? Ch owns. Ch owns. Chones. Is that a word? Is it is now I'm trying to chone file or chown? It is a word now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when those Linux server containers start up, it's trying to chone a file, right, or an entire directory structure based on the PUID and PGID files that you set or environment variables that you set into the container. And that doesn't play terribly nice with Rootless Podman because if your container runs with the root user, so that this is the process inside the container is running as root, then it runs as the container on the host, which is actually kind of desirable. It's not like your root on the host. You're just root within the realm of that container. It then maps to your container user on the host. So, you know, ID 1000 or whatever it would be. Except if I try and specify my user ID 1000, say, into an LSIO container, it doesn't translate and it maps to a sub UID. And there'll be a link explaining all this in the show notes down below. And it means I can't actually edit any of the files on the file system as the user that I'm running the containers as, but they will work just fine in the containers themselves. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I try and run those containers, the Linux server containers, as root? P- set P-U-I-D equals zero. Jobs are good, right? Well, it turns out that certain apps like web servers throw a little hissy fit if you try and run <laughs> yeah. them as root. And they say, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. There's really bad practice. Essentially what it means, long story short, is that the way in which the Linux server containers specifically and any container like them is, are, are architected, isn't really compatible with rootless podman at this time see and of course i use quite a few Uh, i think the linux server containers are
0: great especially for the multimedia stack stuff so you know right go figure i got a couple of those nice discovery though alex because you give me a lot to work with here i think i could get it working just based
1: on kind of this poking around that you've done here well, I do plan on making a YouTube video about it, of course. Now that's going to be the follow-up of everything in the podcast. <laughs> right. There'll be a podcast and a YouTube and a blog post and a tweet and a toot. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a bit much. Well, but uh, I'm having a hard time keeping track of it all. Yeah, me too. We'll see how it goes anyway. But, I mean, hopefully we can work out some kind of an add-in script or a workaround specifically for the Linux server containers because I don't think I'm going to be the only person that asks them about it. When I spoke to some of the dev team about it this week, uh, their response was, well, at the moment, and certainly historically, we've targeted home server users that aren't using rootless Podman and aren't worried about that kind of thing. We've we've just kind of standardised on Docker as the target. Uh, so we'll see we'll see where it goes, and hopefully we can figure out a solution.
0: Yeah, I, I I really like those images. I'd like you said, I'd love to keep using them in Podman. I think they'd be surprised. They'd probably have more interest than they realize because um, I have never voiced an opinion. I've been a user of their containers for years, and I absolutely would pull down the Podman stuff.
1: But it would make it more compatible with Kubernetes and and stuff, not just Podman as well. So it's it's definitely worth investigating. I'd love to get some boosts or some emails from some listeners
0: out there that have made this Podman journey. You know, there's some people listening like, yeah, all in over here. So let us know how it's been going. Yeah. Now, the week that we're recording, there was a big NextCloud announcement. They Announced. announced NextCloud Hub 4, and they say it pioneers ethical AI integration into their collaboration suite. And so the way it works in NextCloud is you can install the NextCloud server, and then you can go into the list of apps. It's kind of like an app store. It's an app store, I guess, which is built in. And they now have like a hub section. I don't know if you've seen this, Alex, but they have basically a hub section. You go in there and they have a bundle of all of the apps that make up NextCloud hub. And it's really their answer to Office 365 or Google Workspace, but with the advantage that you can self-host it. They have a mail client. They have They even have a SharePoint competitor now that they've introduced. And one of the big features in NextCloud Hub 4 is integration with services like Whisper, Stable Diffusion, and optionally, if you like, ChatGPT. And they're going to try to come up with a scoring system to tell you about the amount of information that may or may not be getting transferred to that third party in the process.
1: And our very own Brent Gerva is on location in Berlin right now as we record, so I think we'll be bringing you a much bigger update on this in this Sunday's Linux Unplugged 503. Yeah, he's div- he's he's all
0: in. Speaking of going all in, he's all in on Nextcloud now. You know, not only has Brent been a multi-year Nextclouder, but he's hanging out in the Berlin office right now, getting like the front row scoop on all this stuff. I got to admit, it does look kind of compelling. We'll link to their announcement in the show notes, and they have some examples and demos in there, and. It seems like a logical integration, kind of like as assistive technologies to make a chat more productive or a document
1: easier. I'm so glad to have NextCloud in our lives. You know, I I rely on it to to store all sorts of legal documents and photo backup from iOS devices and stuff actually works pretty well as long as I remember to open the app every few days. It's just such a treasure of a project. And to see them integrate AI so early is absolutely wild and a, a fantastic achievement. I agree. And it's going to be the name of the game this year, is getting
0: some of these open source AI projects integrated. Whisper is a no-brainer because that is a super effective transcription tool. And so you can have it transcribe voice messages. They're adding a new voice note tool that you make a voice note and then it uses Whisper on the back end to transcribe it. I, too, Alex, am more hooked on NextCloud than ever. I mean, as you know, I'm an Android guy now. I got my Android phone, as you know, because I'm an Android user. You you have mentioned it once or twice. And the entire back end for that Graphene OS device is Nextcloud, like entirely. The contacts, the calendar, um, the notes system, backups go to Nextcloud. Multiple different note systems actually are using Nextcloud integration. And then the number one feature for the spouse is the recipes app. The Recipes app on Nextcloud combined with a local Recipes app, that's what, that's what got her hooked. And it was going great, Alex. She was on board. I was making notes. She was on board with the notes because she wants to keep track of like maintenance and stuff like that that we're doing on the different vehicles in the RV. It was fantastic until one night she wanted to make dinner. And she opened up the notes app or the, I'm sorry, the, the cookbook app. And she got like a server 500 air. I'm like, what? So I log her out and I log her back in. Can't log in. I open up the app on my phone. Server 500 error.
1: Hmm.
0: I go to the website. You know, the, the, I go to the built-in Nextcloud page. Everything's working fine. Well, I see that the cookbook app or whatever it is, the recipes app, whatever it's called, I forget, updated a few days ago. Maybe I need to update Nextcloud to bring it up to date so they're compatible because Nextcloud seems to be working. So I hit the old upgrade button because there was an upgrade available. This is before Hub 4. And um, starts doing the upgrade process, does the download, does the extract. And right as it's going through its process, it stops, generates a red error message about a database error, and then just puts the whole system in maintenance mode, throws its hands up, says it's no longer continuing, yeah. and I have a completely dysfunctional Nextcloud. Can't, can't use it, can't log
1: into it. Nothing's working. It's okay because you had a, a ZFS snapshot of the data set before you started, right?
0: I probably Or a
1: backup. I probably had a backup from about
0: four days ago, three days ago. You know, like, you know, it was days. It was going to miss definitely some notes, definitely would miss some syncing stuff, and definitely miss a couple of recipes. So it was not a great option. Could be a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't panicked, but I was frustrated. You know, that, where you're at that stage where you're like, oh, this is a pain in my butt. Not like, oh, God, what am I going to do? And then also like all the notes and the recipes and all that stuff, it's all just markdown on the file system. So even if I lost the next cloud database, I still have the markdown. So really wasn't that worried. But I would like to know what happened, and I I still don't really. I'm going to investigate it further. It could be a power outage because we had our you know Jupes is basically a moving UPS, but we had a we had an inverter issue. Actually, we had a surge protector issue. Surge protector died in the line of duty but it caused the power to go out for a little bit. And so the server went down and then came back up and then went down again pretty hard. That could have caused it, but it was running for several days after that incident. NextCloud seemed to be working. In fact, everything seemed to be working except for the recipes app. So it could have been that something broke in the the SQLite database during the upgrade. I found an issue on the NextCloud GitHub. I found several issues where there is essentially something that Nextcloud was inserting into the database that SQLite doesn't support in one of their updates. So it could have been that. And they had to issue a follow-up update to solve a problem that was affecting users of SQLite databases. And Nextcloud, in the admin interface, makes it clear that you shouldn't use SQLite. I was using SQLite because I'm one user with, you know, it's like one, we have 1.5 users on this Nextcloud. So I thought to myself, well, SQLite can handle that. But what I didn't appreciate is the NextCloud project isn't building with SQLite in mind. They're building with more common, more robust databases in mind. And if you're going to use NextCloud in production, you really should move off SQLite because it seems like it may have been broken by upstream. Like they just put, they added, it was basically a regression that they had to take out. And I got caught right in the middle when that was floating out there in the updates. That could be what happened too.
1: I'll admit, when you messaged me, I I raced to my source code to go and check what I'm doing. (laughs) Thankfully, I, a few years, I mean, I've been running my next cloud. This instance I install in London, so it must be five or six years old now or something. And uh, I use MariaDB, MySQL underneath, and it's been, you know, I hate the phrase, but it's been solid as a rock. All right. That's good to know. Yeah. I was really just trying to avoid the work.
0: Um, because it's never bitten me before, but now I know. So you know, we had to do like, uh, I, first of all, was down for a bit, which sucked, and definitely reduced the spousal approval factor, and then had to run a SQL Light repair against it, and then got Nextcloud out of maintenance mode by by getting into the container, like you have to do. And then executing OCC, own cloud command line client, OCC on Nextcloud, and getting it out of maintenance mode and basically recovering Nextcloud on the command line using a command line PHP tool, which thankfully they include. I'm very thankful and it gives me a little peace of mind because you can do quite a bit with that command with that OCC command line tool. But you do have to drop down to the command line in the container that you're running Nextcloud in and uh, start that process back up. So then you can go to the web and finish the upgrade. (laughs) (laughs) okay <laughs> okay and yes i am running a docker version where you update it via the web app it's that's actually how it works you up you update the container and you actually update via the web app as well but uh, it's back up it's running and so far it's been solid it was a little shaky there for a moment and it made me appreciate just how dependent i've become on Nextcloud. Um, i'm really really thankful because what it's done is it's given me a base to build all kinds of stuff phone tracking notes m- my favorite map locations i have a I have an app that just simply I'm wherever I'm at. It just saves that location in a database on Nextcloud, and then I can pull all of them up as a list, and I can export them out as common mapping formats. It's so just like little stuff
1: like that. I've built infrastructure that I used to have to use Google or Apple for. It's great. So you've got a piece of proper infrastructure now to look after. Yeah. What are you going to change? Are you going to migrate to MySQL or just yeah? Hope yeah. it doesn't happen again. Or
0: no, I got to move databases and then. I'm going to make sure that the snapshot actually goes off-site too, because I realize that's the other thing is I have backups, but I don't know if the snapshots are going off-site. I have backups of all the data, but I don't know about the database.
1: I'm a huge fan of having each application have its own ZFS data set. And then I use Jim Salter's Sanoid tool to automate the snapshots there, but you could just as easily do it with any other you know, our sync or our snapshot tool as well. If you want to just do the files, auto another one you could do, and then you could back it up to an S3 object store. Cause I know you're a big fan of S3 uh, related storage. So we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody that's looking to migrate from SQLite to MySQL. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of the audience members do what I did and look at their next cloud deployment and realize, Oh um, yeah, that's right. I did, Push that technical debt down the road a little bit. And Mm -hmm. perhaps I should take care of it. So, yeah,
0: learn from Chris. Not only is it sort of underperforming using SQLite, right? You're going to get better performance if you move to a more robust database. And that's nice. But what I have learned, and I'm sure they didn't, they won't do it again for a long time. But what I've learned is upstream development on Nextcloud isn't catching and testing and building everything with SQLite in mind. And that's what I think bit me this time. Could be the power outage thing, so I have to make that caveat. But having read the issues on their GitHub, there's multiple instances of people having a very similar error, maybe a slight difference, but very similar. And it
1: was all solved by a patch that they issued. Belkin announced this week they've taken a big step back from Matter. Did you see this? Yeah, this is, I think, what,
0: You and myself too were kind of concerned. And this is the the key thing about everybody using the same protocol and the same standards is they said, you know, we're going to pull back until we can quote find a way to differentiate. And I think that's the big issue that always drove these vendors to building their own proprietary home protocols. That's why we've been in this really since the 90s. People coming up with proprietary home automation protocols and communication standards because they want to differentiate. But the, the thing about Matter is it was supposed to address the fact that, okay, you had 25-plus years to try to get it right, and you haven't. So now we're all going to work together, and we're going to innovate in a different layer, not at the communications layer. And I can get behind that, but it seems Belkin, a.k.a. Wemo, doesn't like it. Which, what are they going to do? Stick to Wi-Fi and use their own proprietary apps and stuff? That's just going to feel like old, crappy technology.
1: Yeah, I think all it does is it endangers my, uh, my likelihood of buying another Belkin device moving forward, which was the likelihood was pretty low anyway. So I'm not their target market. I just hope that other manufacturers don't follow suit. All right, we got some boosts into the show. And to keep runtime down, we're going to do the top
0: three boosts this week. But thank you, everybody who supports the show. As the network navigates 2023, Support for the productions from our members and the boosters, I think, are going to matter more than ever. And the hotel guy is our top booster this week. Get ready. 132,222 sats. It's one of your countrymen. He says, hi from the UK. Longtime listener. First time booster. Here's my origin story. I started listening to Alex after he was on the Home Assistant podcast. Hey, another one. Jeez, I should go back on that podcast. Yeah, let's give him a plug, the Home Assistant podcast. Since then, I subscribed to everything along with Joe's family of shows. And I'm a Jupiter.party member too. Uh, I thought my first boost should be into the show that hooked me to the network and was going to do this for episode 100. But who has the patience? Keep up the great work. JB Team, incredible content, production, and community. We'll we'll always accept another boost for episode 100, you know? That's true. That's true. (laughs) Thank you for being our baller. I am Jeroot comes in this week with 65,152 sats. He echoes something that several boosters and uh, commenters and emailers and matrix people were talking about this week. People loved your diagrams and your schemas. They said, well done. Um, They want to know about a dual carrier OpenSense box to follow. Hmm. So yeah, did, so did you stick? Did you keep that
1: extra network connection you were trialing from T-Mobile? Yeah, I'm going to keep it just for the next few months, I think, and uh, it it's working fine on the the VLAN that I talked about. Another question that we had was, what software did I use for the diagram? And I used Draw.io for that. Poverty Panda did the initial run, and then I just modified it from there. I actually used to use Keynote on the Mac for a lot of diagrams before, believe it or not, because a lot of the tools for moving images around and connecting lines and stuff on on the Mac, at least, it's really nice. But draw.io is, you know, browser-based. That's a nice upgrade. And you can use it on other systems. (laughs) Well, there is that, yeah. Uh, Okay, so he wants to
0: also know, uh, have you played around with IPv6? Do you deploy it or use it? He thinks maybe us geeks should be pushing it eventually so we can end the dreaded carrier grade NAT tyranny
1: no, I hate it. Go away. Leave me with my IPv4 addresses that I can at least remember. And to be honest, do we really want every device in the world to be publicly routable on the internet? I don't know about that. You know, Alex,
0: when I was a kid, just entering high school, all of the schools here in America that had internet were given ginormous IPv4 blocks, like ginormous. And so Nobody, no one even thought about it. When we first started getting TCP IP, we just, put pub, we just gave every computer in the district and printer that was on IP an IP4 address, a public IP4 address. They were all 169.204. And then we had a huge range after that from basically like, I think, from like, I think we had 169.204.110 and then we had 169.204 to like 120 or something. I mean, we had a ginormous,
1: ginormous range. I mean, IPv4 blocks nowadays are a tradable commodity. That's insane. It was really something. I mean, our student computers, student
0: computers had routable IPv4 addresses. Now, most of the network's important vital resources were actually on IPX at the time, which wasn't routable. So like the, the network servers were fine, but the Windows boxes got trashed.
1: Maybe I'm just ignorant, but every time I've tried to do anything with IPv6 seriously, it's just been a hot mess. I'd say it's probably useful in a data center where you are going to bump up against the limits of, you know, local subnet number of devices. But at home, certainly I'm fine with the model that we have now. Maybe this makes me a Luddite. I don't care. It works well for me and my brain. I have a firewall. I have a bunch of IP addresses behind it. I understand it. Nat is good. I think that's it. I agree because it's like I like like IP4
0: on the LAN. I know uh, carriers and ISPs are all using IPv6 as well. So a lot of your traffic does end up going ar- over IPv6 for short periods of time. Um, but for me, I do prefer IPv4. Be, I, I guess I wouldn't care if my public firewall uh, port was IPv6. Uh, I don't really care. Yeah, it's behind the LAN is where I care. Yeah. All right. And then our very last boost. Thank you, everybody else who did boost in. We really appreciate it. But uh, Scuba Steve. Just net the cutoff with 15,000 sats. Hey, Chris and Alex, I have NextCloud running on a $5 VPS since 2016. Well done, Steve. And in general, it's been really reliable. However, my Linux knowledge and experience has increased much since then, thanks to the JB shows. And I'd like to redeploy it using more modern tools. Oh, Alex, I think he's talking to you. (laughs) My current instance is installed the old-fashioned way, downloading the tar.gz from NextCloud and setting up Nginx and using PHP on the host system. My question is, what installation method would you use for a rock-solid NextCloud instance in 2023? Whatever I do, I'd like to get a similar six-plus-year runtime out of it with only updates, upgrades, and storage to manage. Thanks for the great shows, guys. See you at Linux Fest Northwest in October. Awesome.
1: I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't, can't wait either. So obviously my answer is going to be use Docker. I mean, rootless Podman. <laughs> Right, right, right. So I think it really depends on how you stored the data on the back end. I'm not familiar from your question how the database setup you used works, but uh, if you've been storing the data, let's say, in a MySQL database, it should just be a case of bringing up the application in a container and pointing the correct environment variables at that database, and hopefully you're good to go. Yeah, I I thought maybe it'd be an opportunity for you to work in some Ansible there, you know, but uh, you didn't. Oh well, I mean, if you want me to work if you want me to work the uh the ansible angle, go watch my latest YouTube video.
0: Hey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, so you're getting this YouTube thing down where I talk about secret management with docker compose and ansible and how you can deploy docker containers automatically using ansible.
0: Yeah. I mean, um I could try to work in a nix angle here too, but I actually don't think you need any of that necessarily, Scuba Steve, I think. Uh you really with a with a container like and using something like docker compose it's so simple once you have the database it's so simple to just spin the application up like you could move the database
1: to a new server spin the application up again i mean it really makes that way more portable that's absolutely what i did when i lived in london my next cloud was on my server in london when i emigrated i threw it up on a a linode vps for about six months whilst i actually emigrated and then when i was ready i brought it back on premise again uh hmm. this time in america and it worked super well i just did i think it was a zfs replication of all the snapshots or maybe it was an Sync. i can't remember it was a while ago but yeah it's super portable that's a great
0: idea i should keep that in mind if i ever have to shut it down on jupes for a bit but you know i thought i could move it to the studio like i was thinking what would i do with that but no i could just move it to the cloud for a bit totally Thank you, everybody who boosted in. Uh, You can get a new podcast app if you want to check out the new podcasting 2.0 features that we're working on behind the scenes. Or if you want to keep your dang podcast app and you just want to send us a message, go get Albie. Getalbie.com. That's a web-based booster. And then you go to podcastindex.org. Look up self-hosted. We'll put a link in the notes. And you can just boost right there from the web page. And then you don't have to change your podcast app and you can still get your message on the show while supporting us. And of course, a big, huge, like internet-sized bear hug to our sre subscribers you make the dang show possible by investing in the ongoing production you get an ad free feed as a thank you with a post show self-hosted.show slash sre those feeds will be changing in the semi near future Uh, i won't affect members but if you have been freeloading hope you've enjoyed the sample but the feeds will be changing semi soon
1: and don't forget, LinuxFest Northwest is back this October. You can go to linuxfestnorthwest.org to get all the information. Call for Papers is open. So if you're looking to do your first open source talk, we'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be great to see a good selection of self-hosted topics at LinuxFest. So, you know, people could go to LinuxFest and learn a lot about self-hosting. That was one of the very first talks you gave at a Linux Fest, and I really enjoyed yours. Yeah, and look what happened. I mean... <laughs> we need a lot more we need everybody doing it so go check it out linuxfestnorthwest.org and then just a general reminder it's a little late by the time this episode comes out but we do have meetups just sometimes rather impromptu and uh, we put them at meetup.com slash broadcasting so if you join over there you'll get notified like we just had one in berlin but uh, the timing doesn't work out by the time you're hearing this but if you were a meetup member you would have known
1: about it already Self-hosted.show is the place to go to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Yeah, I'm over there. Sure. At Chris Les and the show at Self-Hosted Show. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was self show slash 93.